Okay, last week I ended with this slide. What I'm going to do this week, look at millennialism in, within the churches of Christ, which is not, not a whole lot there, but, uh, and then we're going to look at some strengths and weaknesses of the major millennial views. So, before we do that, we spent four weeks talking about the history of millennialism, which goes way back before Jesus. The Zoroastrians, the Persians, uh, they had a millennial belief, but what have I learned? I told you four weeks ago I picked this because I didn't know anything about it and I wanted to know something about it. There's no better way to learn something than to teach it, right? Yep. And I'm still not an expert at it, obviously, uh, by any stretch of imagination. But what I learned, you may have learned something different, is millennialism has had, I'll get over here so I can read, a major worldwide impact on religions, politics, and cultures for more than 2,000 years, and vice versa. By that I mean religions, politics, and cultures have had a major impact on millennialism as well. <clears throat> Another thing I learned was that premillennialism and postmillennialism have coexisted since the earliest church, earth, yeah. And each succeeding the other in the aftermath of its disappointed apocalyptic hopes. Now we saw that throughout history, I think. Um, it seems when the future looks hopeless, I mentioned this last week, premillennialism or amillennialism dominate, and when the future looks bright, postmillennialism dominates. I'm still thinking about last week, Martin Luther. Everything was so bad in his time that he was a, an amillennialist because he followed Augustine's teachings. <clears throat> uh, each generation tends to attach current events, nations, and people from their own times to the symbols of apocalyptic biblical literature. We, we saw that yeah, when Rome was sacked. Yeah, remember that? When the, uh, in the different civil wars in Europe and all the way down to the 19th and 20th century in the United States. <clears throat> Predicting the time of Jesus' return has a perfect track record. As Ted said last week, it's always wrong. It's always been wrong so far. Now, I'm, I got an idea. Each of us pick a day, you know, and say, well, tomorrow he's going to come. You know, and then run that all the way up you know, as far as we can, one of us might be right. <laughs> Let's see, another thing I've learned from this study. Um, striving for or forcing a utopian society to arm twist Jesus into returning has not worked yet. <laughs> I'm not saying it won't work. Not like you could arm twist Jesus. Well. We know that Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return, so I think we have the arm with God. I'd like to see any of those arms with God. <laughs> uh, putting hope in a human government to create heaven on earth has never worked. We saw that with the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Nazism, communism, socialism, all kinds of isms. <laughs> yeah, we all seem to keep trying. Yeah, and, and it doesn't. Yeah, none of none of these things that I've learned keep people from doing the same thing over and over and over, repeating, like Winston Churchill said in 1948, you know, we fail to learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. 
but uh, yeah, we all we all do the same thing. <coughs> uh, millennial beliefs depend on one's interpretation of apocalyptic writing, whether it's preterist or futurist. If you believe most of the prophecies in the Bible were for those times, that's preterist. If you believe most of the Bible prophecies are for future times, especially my time, <laughs> then you're a futurist. <coughs> um, now, th this, is, this is really important, I think, as we've learned through the last four weeks. Sincere, honest Bible believers use the same scriptures and come up with differing points of view. Can you believe that? That's what I learned. Uh, you may not have learned that, but that's what I learned. <laughs> so the, these are some of the things that, that I've learned. Maybe you've learned something different during these four weeks. Question? Yes. Yeah, the sincere, honest, different points of view, I was wondering, has, it, I mean, has that actually been the, the result of the split in churches? Ah, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go into the history of the Churches of Christ. Let's see, just within our own, Patrick called it tribe. <laughs> Let's see how that works. Here's Edward Fudge. Some of uh, uh, Maxwell's new Edward Fudge. And I'm wearing this shirt, ACU shirt, in honor of him. He, he graduated from Abilene Christian College with a bachelor's and a master's, and then he went to Houston, got his law degree. He was an elder of the Barry Street Church of Christ for many years, and he's, his most famous work, and he is a scholar, is The Fire That Consumes, which I bought a copy of in 1984 from the Gospel Advocate. Anyway, this guy, I was sad to hear or see that he died in 2017. Anyway, I'm wearing this ACU shirt. My kids both went to ACU too, but I'm wearing in honor of him. He kind of uh, repeats my first lesson that I learned. He said, history, religious or otherwise, involves many varied factors. Among these are great men, economic conditions, and the prevailing social and political philosophies, which have a great impact on the prevailing Millennial beliefs in each generation. Yes. <clears throat> and there's a link. Uh, Scott puts this stuff out on the church website. There's a link. You can read the, this whole article, which I'm summarizing in the next few slides, which is uh, millennialism in the churches of Christ, or at least the history of it. <clears throat> Thanks, Edward. The early to mid-1800s was a time of optimism with a strong belief in the perfectibility of society, especially in the United States. Historian David E. Harrell said that before 1830, both Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone linked their religious reform efforts with the eventual spiritual and social regeneration of the world. The future of America itself was frequently conceived as fulfillment of Bible prophecy. See, everybody uses this stuff in their own time and uh, Walter Scott, there he is on the, on the side there, died in 1831, no, 1832, a year after David Lipscomb was born. Walter Scott said that America was the first of the Messianic nations and affirmed that it would soon be followed by all others. So our early restorationist leaders uh, were really optimistic in the early 1800s and thought the United States was the way to... I shouldn't say arm twist Jesus into coming, but it was post-millennialism. Alexander Campbell, a handsome guy on the right, 
looked for a utopian society and his millennial harbinger was a herald of it. In the first issue he wrote, this work should be devoted to the destruction of sectarianism, infidelity, and anti-Christian doctrine and practice. It shall have for its object the development and introduction of that political and religious order of society called the millennium, which will be the consummation of that ultimate amelioration improvement of society proposed in Christian scriptures. He was definitely a post-millennialist. And a lot of his ideas and teachings were based on his post-millennial ideas. Uh, in fact, he explained them in 1841 to 1842 in 18 ar ar articles in the Harbinger. I found a picture of this uh, 1857 edition of the Millennial Harbinger. They have it in the ACU library. <clears throat> he expected the millennial reign of Christ through the gospel after all nations were converted and all sectarians had returned to that ancient order of things. This was one basis of his appeal for restoration. If we could all just get together, be good Christians, non-sectarian, we can arm twist Jesus into coming at the end of the, this uh, symbolic millennium. <clears throat> When men accepted this platform, divisions would cease. When divisions ended, the gospel would be preached by a united church. Then the nation would be converted and men would enjoy a thousand years of joy and peace under the gospel. At the end of the millennium, Christ would return, the resurrection would occur, and judgment would take place for eternity. Campbell rejected a literal resurrection before the millennium and disliked setting dates for the Lord's return. Probably because he did a little study and found out they were all wrong, too. <laughs> in later life, he was disappointed to see the sex still striving and the world unconverted. Of course, as I mentioned last week, he died in 1866, right after the Civil War. Uh, he had 11, 11 kids. Nine of them died of consumption, one drowned. I mean, this guy had every reason to be pessimistic by the time he died. But back in the 1840s, he was really optimistic and therefore a post-millennialist. <clears throat> Barton W. Stone, according to his writings in The Christian Messenger, Stone apparently began as a post-millennialist, but soon adopted premillennial views. He believed the millennium would be 365,000 years. Now, the only thing I can think of is 365 days in a year, but there's really 365 and a quarter, and a quarter kind of, sort of, just, you know, because... <laughs> If the year is divisible by 400, then it's a, a leap year and the other centennial years aren't or something like that. Anyway, uh, during it, no wicked person would be alive on earth. Satan would be bound and the resurrected righteous would enjoy with the living saints the bodily presence of the Lord. So all these people were foundational to the restoration movement from which the churches of Christ, Christian church and disciples of Christ come. <clears throat> Other early leaders, Walter Scott and Robert Milligan, shared Campbell's post-millennial views with modifications. Everybody has a modification. <laughs> uh, Scott's thinking included certain premillennial elements, and Milligan expected the Jews to return to Palestine. Elias Smith, a New England restorationist, was firmly premillennial. Uh, Smith expected a literal thousand years reign of Christ on earth, the return of the Jews to Palestine, and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. There's a wide variety of views here from our restorationist leaders. 
Campbell's post-millennial views prevailed in the movement until the mid-century. Uh, when war clouds began to gather, many Americans, including some restorationists, lost their optimistic view of history. Well, yeah, when you know personally 15 people that died in the Civil War, and they were all your relatives. <laughs> Post-millennialism gradually became identified with modernism and the new social gospel. We talked about that last week. Uh, making the world the best place ever, Jesus would have to return because everybody's saved. Premillennialism, largely through reaction, a lot of this is reactionary, became associated with evangelicalism and the conservative Bible prophecy groups. He put, Edward Fudge put these in quotes. I, I can only guess why. I think I can guess why. But for the restoration movement, he says, the heyday of, the, of millennialism had come to an end, basically. <clears throat> but, as Kathy mentioned a few weeks ago, there's this guy named Robert H. Boll, who was born in Germany, and at age 17 he came to America and enrolled at the National Bible School, which later became David Lipscomb University, or college. Um, David Lipscomb had high praise for this kid. Um, remember, let's see, David Lipscomb was born in 31. Yeah, he was born in 31, so he was a pretty old guy by the time Bowl came along in, in 1915. Uh, once said of Bowl that he would never intentionally do anything to diminish love for Christ or obedience to him. In 1915, Robert H. Bowl preached a few chapel sermons on the history of the Jews, bringing in some of his ideas on their future. Then Lipscomb spoke. It was an interesting story, he said, may or may not occur according to our ideas of it. He suggested that Bull preach now to help these young people be saved. Uh, Bull accepted the suggestion with, uh, with uh, grace. Lipscomb himself was openly disinterested in millennialist speculation and was persistently unwilling to discuss the subject. What's that verse in the Bible that says, avoid stupid controversies? <laughs> I don't know, David Lipscomb was an old, wise man by, by then. He died in 1917, by the way. Exactly 100 years before Edward Fudge died. Huh. I like these little number things. Uh, Anyway, for seven years, Bull edited the front page of the Gospel Advocate. During 1915, he began to discuss prophecy in his column, Word and Work. Controversy ensued, and he was dropped from the Advocate, later reinstated, and then a firm foundation editorial suggested that Bull's reinstatement was unmistakable evidence that the other Advocate editors considered any doctrinal differences with Bull to be trivial. I take the firm foundation didn't like this bull's premillennialist ideas. <clears throat> uh, he was later dropped again, and in 1916, Bull began publishing Word and Work, taking with him the name of his former column and the Gospel Advocate. He continued with it until his death in 1956. Um, fairly, fairly newish type guy in history, right? I was alive in 56, weren't you? Okay. <laughs> it's just like yesterday. Um, anyway, he continued uh, till his death uh, in Nashville. Uh, most brethren continued to regard him highly and had fellowship with him. No problemos. 
But in 1927, Robert H. Bowl and H. Leo Bowles, uh, who was then the president of David Lipson College, had a written discussion on the millennium, I guess a written debate. It ended with both men still the best of friends and regarding each other as brethren in Christ. In the debate, Bowl affirmed the national restoration of Israel, Christ's earthly reign with his saints, and the premillennial and imminent return of Christ. So people could get along even though they disagreed back then, at least in 1927. This was really interesting. I left this in here. When Bowl was dropped from the advocate in 1915, the paper carried advertisement for salves to cure boils, chills, dandruff, corn, pellagra, itch, and gray hair. Or for two bucks, one could order 10 gallons of mineral water, which boasted comfort from indigestion, dyspepsia, rheumatism, biliousness, kidney trouble, or gallstones. By the 1927 debate, advocate advertisers were selling primarily books, china, dress patterns, and laying hens. He says, time marches on. Well, <laughs> that was almost 100 years ago. It's kind of interesting, the gospel advocate way back then was selling that kind of stuff. When I bought Edward Fudge's book in 1984, I didn't see any of that stuff. They're mainly selling books and stuff. <laughs> as positions grew more fixed in the late 1930s, brethren began to be branded as premillennialists or bolites or sympathizers. Uh, by the 1940s, the issue had become a general point of fellowship with many on either side. There were firings, resignations, charges, pressures, and threats. Now, that first picture I put up on the board four weeks ago is my uh, great-grandparents' grave outside of the Old Lamine Church of Christ in Backwater. It's actually Blackwater, <laughs> Missouri, out in the middle of nowhere. And I told you in the 50s when I'd, my family would visit my grandparents, he'd sit over there on Sunday morning and read his Bible, and she'd sit over there in, in her chair and read her Bible. They didn't agree on millennialism, and they didn't agree with the people of the old Amin Church of Christ on millennialism. So for them, I guess it was a similar issue back in the 50s. <clears throat> the Gospel Guardian began in 1935 under Foy E. Wallace Jr., which a lot of you probably read some of his stuff, to oppose all error, especially premillennialism. A debate was held January 2 through 6, 1933, in Winchester, Kentucky, between Foy E. Wallace, Jr., then editor of the Gospel Advocate, and Charles M. Neal, preacher for the Main Street Church of Christ in Winchester. Premillennial Brethren operated one college, I didn't know this, Southeastern Christian College in Winchester, Kentucky, which closed its doors in 1979, <clears throat> not that long ago. But prior to that time, there were about 120 associated congregations divided over some of the same issues which divided a millennial brethren. You don't say. <laughs> uh, and then as Kathy mentioned, I read this one other place. Uh, in 2000, the published directory of Churches of Christ ceased indicating millennialist views. <clears throat> so that's, that was a history from Edward Fudge of millennialism in the Church of Christ, and he summed it up by saying W.W.O.T., or Ati, however you say his name, seemingly sums up what has been the mainstream attitude in the Restoration Movement, a.k.a. Churches of Christ, probably Christian Church and Disciples of Christ as well, 
with this interpretation of Revelation 20. <clears throat> Some say that the thousand years began on Pentecost and will continue to Christ's returns. If that is true, then why stress it? How to become Christians and how to serve is easily understood. When the thousand years began or, or begins belongs to God, not to us. Others affirm that the thousand years is in the future. Much strife and disturbance has been caused by persistently stressing this theory. Now just suppose that this theory turns out to be right. In that case, it cannot have any bearing on our lives now. Again, that is God's side, not ours. Is it not good to know the Lord, whom we so imperfectly serve, is able to bind Satan for a time called a thousand years? Why should we worry, argue, and cause confusion when the thousand years will be and whether it is just a thousand years, or as we record time, or as a period of much greater length. All that belongs alone to God, it is ours to faithfully serve him and to leave him all matters that are not within our power to perform. <clears throat> I like that. I mean, after studying, and I spent tons and tons of time on this stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and I can spend a hundred times as much. There's a hundred times as much information out there. Nobody throughout history has got this figured out perfectly. Nobody knows. Christ hasn't returned yet. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I genuinely think those early church fathers and the early church doctors and the theologians so much smarter than I am you know, they wrestled with this, and they all came up with different points of view. They were honest, sincere, God-fearing men. And maybe, I didn't read about any women in there, but maybe there is, you know. Um, it's out of our hands, basically. So, let's take a look at the four main millennial views with pros and cons, or strengths and weaknesses. If you want to find out strengths for a particular view, go to a site that espouses that particular view. If you want to find out the weaknesses of a particular view, go to the other site. <laughs> They'll tell you what the weaknesses of the other people are. <laughs> so that's, that's about how I did this. And the, the problem is there's so many different variations of, of each of these. You know, they call these the four main views, but there's all kinds of variations. I got a lot of the stuff out of the blueletterbible.org, Lisey's diagram. And they state right off that they are dispensational premillennialists. They think that is the best view, but they've got a diagram in here. Here's the historical premillennialism. And historical was what we used for the first 400 years, the early church fathers. Uh, they seem, there's a bunch of them, we'll, we'll have a list here in a minute. That's, uh, that indicate this idea of premillennialism, Jesus returning before the millennium and spending how many, how many ever years, could be a thousand or could be undetermined, you know, somewhat symbolic, but somewhat simple. Here we are in the church age, there's a great rebellion, there's a tribulation where the Antichrist reigns, then the rapture occurs and Jesus returns right before setting up this thousand year uh, reign. Uh, where Satan is bound, and then at, 
at the end of that thousand years or indeterminate period of time, uh, Satan is loosed, and then the big battle with all the rebellious people, Gog and Magog, just symbols of uh, the rebel rebellious people. Magog was actually the grandson of Noah, and he was kind of like the went up in the northern European area. Those dead gum barbarians that sacked Rome, <laughs> uh, and then the the judgment, and then the eternal state. So <clears throat> I've got a little bit in here on each of these historical premillennialists place the return of Christ just before the millennium and just after a time of great apostasy and tribulation. After the millennium, Satan will be loosed and Gog and Magog will rise against the kingdom of God. This will be immediately followed by the final judgment. Features and distinctions, the, the major points I took out of it. You could read through this stuff and get a different set maybe, but the church is the fulfillment of Israel. Since the Jewish nation has no separate redemptive plan, it can join the church with true faith in Christ. <coughs> Which is, that's saying something, because that's not what the dispensational premillennialists believe, and they're both premillennialists. The kingdom of God is present through the spirits since Pentecost, but to be experienced by sight during the millennium after Christ's return. The duration of the millennial kingdom could be literal or metaphorical. The major points of that one. Now, if you want to get this off the website, there's a little more stuff in there on each of these. I put that in there just for people that may be reading through later. <clears throat> and then post-millennialism. I looked at it on a website uh, where a guy is trying to track the post-millennialist churches. There's a little over from other websites, little over three million Christian church buildings in the world. <laughs> uh, whether all of them being used or not, I don't know. But there, this guy, in the whole world, he could only list 196 congregations where at least their pastor believed in post-millennialism. So post-millennialism has fallen out of, what are, what's the word I'm looking for? Favor. Favor, thank you. <laughs> fallen out of favor it's but this is the one that that we talk about if if we can just and Alexander Campbell we can just bring everybody together everybody read the Bible the same all become part of the same Christian church get rid of sectarianism all this kind of stuff we could usher in the Millennium that's where the arm twisting Jesus to come it comes in but throughout time, we, we noticed that, that post-millennialism through the Roman Empire, the, the eternal Rome, Pax Romana, everything was so great, post-millennialism, that was, that was the thing. Uh, we've, we've seen that several times, and we as humans have never been able to spread the gospel so well that we converted most of the world, <laughs> we. So the, the saving uh, power is in Jesus, obviously, but... So, I don't know, that's so out of favor and so rare these days that I probably don't need to spend much time with it, but uh, what's the features and distinctions? It says, the church is the fulfillment of Israel, just as same as historical premillennialism. There isn't a separate redemptive path for the nation of Israel and another distinct separate path for Gentiles. <clears throat> The church is the fulfillment of Israel. 
the kingdom of God is a spiritual entity experienced on earth through the Christianizing effect of the gospel. Uh, partial preterism accompanies post-millennialism, believing that the majority of the pro prophecies were filled in 70 AD at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, <clears throat> as opposed to the future, everything down, the, uh, down in the future, way past 70 AD. <clears throat> Now, there's a little bit more on there. We won't go into that. Now, this one, dispensational premillennialism, uh, I've mentioned a couple of times, is the predominant view of Baptists and most non-denominational evangelical Christian churches today. And it was this idea of dispensation was brought up by John Nelson Darby back in the 1800s. <clears throat> and uh, he was an Irish... Anglican priest, and his ideas came over the United States and were fairly uh, catching on anyway in the 1830s. Uh, and that was a time when some of these restorationist uh, leaders that we talked about earlier were alive, although Walter Scott died in 1832. But they divided uh, human history into these seven different dispensations. Each one of them uh, has demonstrates a different way that God dealt with people. For instance, Adam and Eve. How did he deal with them? Well, they eventually failed. They sinned and, and they had to die. It kicked them out of the garden. Okay, and then it was the conscience. Uh, when people were populating the earth, but uh, God looked down and said, oh boy, these people are pretty bad. I think I'm going to destroy them with a flood. You know, Every one of these dispensations seems to end in man fails, God brings his judgment on them. And then uh, we're living in the uh, dispensation of grace, which is the beginning, beginning of the church to the beginning of the millennium in Revelation 20. And then the millennial kingdom uh, is talked about the thousand year reign in, in Revelation 24 through 6 is a, a separate dispensation. So I don't, there's so much stuff on this, it's so complex. This is the most complex of all of them. But there's a couple major things in here that are different than the historical premillennialism. And one of them is, you can see in that lowest box and this this was done by people that promote dispensational premillennialism so I assume this is correct <laughs> I said the restoration of the Jews to Palestine conversion of a remnant of Israel temple rebuilt priesthood and sacrifices and cult rituals re, uh, restored this this is probably the main difference besides the dispensations and the restoration of the the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the rituals, as far as I can see. Anyway, this is what they say. <clears throat> Human history is divided into dispensations when God had different methods for dealing with mankind who failed and fell into judgment. God had two completely different plans operating in history, one for the earthly people, Israel, and the other for a heavenly people, the church. But when the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God suspended the prophetic timetable at the end of Daniel's 69th week and began building a new and heavenly people, the church. 
Christ will come before a period of intense tribulation to take his church, living and dead, into heaven. After this, he will return to rule from a holy city, the new Jerusalem, over the earthly nations for 1,000 years. After these 1,000 years, Satan, who was bound up during Christ's earthly reign, will be loosed to deceive the nations, gather an army of the deceived, and battle against the Lord. This battle will end in both the judgment of the wicked and Satan and the entrance into the eternal state of glory by the righteous. So in the features, this is different than the previous two. The church and Israel are two distinct identities with two individual redemptive plans. Uh, Christ will return at the end of the Great Tribulation to institute a thousand-year rule from a holy city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, Those who come to believe in Christ during the 70th week of Daniel, including the 144,000 Jews, and uh, and survive, will go on to populate the earth during this time. Those who were... My eyes are clouding over on me. Those who were raptured or raised previous to the tribulation period will reign with Christ over the millennial population. Uh, And the millennium will see the reestablishment of temple worship and sacrifices as the remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. There's a bunch more detail, but we're skipping that. You can read it if you want to. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, the fourth view is amillennialism which which is the simplest one, <laughs> as you can see by the diagram. And this is the one that uh, today, the Catholic Church, the mainline uh, Protestant denominations, the Amish, the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, hold to except there's people in every church that hold a different beliefs. There's people in this room probably have different beliefs on it. So in general, this is what we're talking about, just like back in the restoration period. In general, they believe this, but so-and-so added this and subtracted that, et cetera, et cetera. But we are in the millennium right now. It's an indeterminable uh, amount of time. Uh, a thousand years is like most other numbers in the apocalyptic literature. It just means a whole bunch of time. Like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, nobody counted the hills. He owns the, he owns them all, <laughs> basically. Uh, and then Christ is going to return. Could be imminent. Uh, and then there's the general resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Anyway, the kingdom of God and and symbolic thousand year reign began at Christ's resurrection when he gained victory over both Satan and death. Christ is now reigning at the right hand of the Father over his church. After this present age has ended, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. Apocalyptic literature is mostly interpreted non-literally. So the distinction, the church, like three out of the four, is the fulfillment of Israel and in this world has a role of suffering. Christians will be hated and hold no hope for an earthly kingdom but long for Christ's return in heavenly glory. And then the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality that all Christians partake in and that it is seen presently by faith but will be grasped by sight at the second coming. BlueLetterBible.org does a pretty good job of summarizing these views even though they state right at the beginning, to be honest with you, we are 
completely for the dispensation, dispensational premillennialism. <clears throat> so anyway, let's go into the strengths and weaknesses as I was able to gather. You know, you'd probably come up with a different set if you stated the same stuff. But uh, pre And this premillennialism is both for historic and dispensational. They're both premillennial. So Revelation 19 depicts the return of Christ, while Revelation 20, 1 through 10, depicts the reign of Christ on the earth. If these chapters describe consecutive events, question mark, if, then this would place the millennial age after Christ's return. Uh, a number of church fathers, such as, and there's a big list, Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactantius, <laughs> hold this view in some state that this was a teaching passed on to them by the eyewitnesses to the ministry of the apostles. It's very interesting. And they got the quotes. I don't have time to put all those quotes in there, but you can find uh, quotes on all these early church fathers' ideas on uh, premillennialism. Although, and uh, some of the research has said, and there were other views held in the early church. <laughs> Isn't that always true? Like Richard Gilmore told me, you get six rabbis in the room, you get eight different opinions. <laughs> Some of us don't even agree with ourselves. <laughs> so its greatest weakness. <clears throat> How does premillennialism square with passages like, and there's a whole list of passages, most of them you'd be familiar with, that make it clear that when Christ comes, its curtains on sin and death immediately. <laughs> We are raised with immortal bodies immediately. You know, the, the passage that uh, Sharon read last week, uh, the heavens will melt. It, it sounds, sounds like upon Christ's return, a lot of this stuff is immediate. <laughs> so this, this is the major uh, weakness that I found. Probably an amillennialist wrote this about premillennialism. Uh, and there will be a final judgment and a final resurrection with a new heavens and a new earth. So, you know, that, that's a good point. If we had time to read through all those passages, a lot of that stuff, and Christ returns, all this stuff happens immediately. There's not a big gap where some of it happens over a thousand years later. However, somebody that's uh, really a scholar in premillennialism could probably make interesting comments or arguments against this weakness, I'm assuming. I don't know. Uh, Oh, just, okay, this just has to do with dispensationalism. It's, uh, its greatest strengths are it stresses a progressive revelation, how God interacts with his people throughout the different stages of redemptive history. These strengths are taken from a dispensationalist site. <laughs> so, understand that. It's emphasis upon the imminent uh, return of Christ. I like that. It's strictly literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. That's emphasized over and over on the dispensational premillennialist site. We interpret scriptures literally, not like those other people that. <laughs> but then if you go to the amillennialist or postmillennialist site and see the weaknesses of dispensational premillennialism, you'll get just the opposite. It's based on a little literal interpretation of symbolic language. So that, you know, that's a weakness uh, counter to the, the so-called strength. 
that God has distinct redemptive purposes for Israel and for the Gentiles is highly problematic in light of a text like Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, where it talks about the Jews and the Gentiles and bring them together as one body. Uh, and I quote part of it. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Yep. That stood out to me. Stressing literalism actually amounts to an Israel-centered interpretation largely taken from the Old Testament prophets. The New Testament presents a Christ-centered reading of redemptive history and reinterprets the place of Israel in that redemptive history. Uh, the church is the true Israel. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still thinking of that Sunday morning Bible class that Gary Stevenson had when uh, Richard asked him a question and Gary calmly turns over Hebrews. He goes through the whole book of Hebrews. I don't know if they have these highlighted or what, reading all these passages about how Christ is the superior priest and the superior sacrifice and the superior you know, forgiveness, of all this kind of stuff. That Jesus failed to set up his kingdom because the Jews rejected him, so the church was an afterthought, not his, uh, not his kingdom, which is still in the future. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, these were written by A and post-millennialists talking about, yeah, I wouldn't believe that dispensational stuff. <clears throat> and these make sense. Now, somebody that's an expert in dispensational theory, like John Nelson Darby, who's long dead, maybe could explain this with some, uh, what's the word? <laughs> I looked yeah, for, some semblance of clarity. yes, okay, there you go, some semblance of clarity, yes. It's big layman's terms. Yes. Now, post-millennialists, Postmillennialism is so out of culture, so out of, nobody believes in this stuff anymore. I say nobody. Maybe 200 churches out of 3 million or something. Knows. I don't even know if we should spend time on it, but it's, it's that one where we're going to convert the whole world to Christ and God is, Jesus is going to return to a saved earth, not to an earth that needs saving. <laughs> uh, you just... I don't know. Does anybody know anybody who's a postmillennialist anymore? Responsibility on that. Yes, you know, even even Alexander Campbell, at the end of his life, he just couldn't see it anymore. <clears throat> anyway, it reminds me of uh, Patrick Mead said he went over to Scotland. He was going to convert Scotland to, you know, when he got over there after. A bit of time, you found out everybody believed in Calvinism. They all said, well, why go to church? Why even come to listen to you? I mean, uh, if God wants you to be saved, you're going to be saved. If he wants you lost, you're going to be lost. And there's nothing you can do about it. You don't have a choice in the matter. So Patrick packed up his bag and came home. <laughs> and if he couldn't do it, wow. Okay, so uh, amillennialism's greatest strength is the imminent return of Christ is the consummation of all things and marks the fullness of both the kingdom of God and the age to come. 
Jesus did not return to set up a kingdom, but to usher in the eternal state and create a new heaven and earth. It's the dominant view of many church scholars, Origen, Augustine, Ambrose, uh, Jerome, Martin Luther, Calvin, and many, many Christians today. Uh, a millennials, so I got this off a premillennialist site, greatest weaknesses, are we currently living in the millennium? Society is disintegrating before our eyes, and the Bible says it will get worse the closer we come to the Lord's return. Is Satan really bound today? Well, the Bible says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, is the church really reigning with Christ over the nations? Try telling that to the persecuted and suffering Christians all over the world. <laughs> this guy that wrote this was a little snarky, I think. Uh, does God have no purpose left for the Jews? After 2,000 years of dispersion all over the world, they are being regathered to Israel in what Jeremiah calls a miracle greater than the deliverance from Egyptian captivity. Well, I mean, I can, I can give an argument against that one. I mean, when did Jeremiah live? 630 to 580. When did Judah get taken off into captivity? It was two or three times, but it started at like 609 and went to 586. So he probably wrote this before Judah was taken back. So it can easily be talking about the return of uh, the Jews from Babylon when they came back and rebuilt the temple, etc. So, but honest Bible-believing scholars can probably go through the strengths and weaknesses of all of these if they're experts in their own view and give some semblance of clarity. <laughs> To a lot of these arguments, so well, I know, Mike. So, in regards to the Jews returning to Palestine, uh, where does 1948 fit into it? Yeah, well, I didn't read 1948 in the Bible anywhere, but <laughs> no, but it really happened. Well, yes, they were dispersed and they actually returned. Oh, yes, but was Jeremiah talking about 1948 or was he talking about uh, 530 something? Seven years. So that would yeah, be, Cyrus uh, put up the edict. Okay, you guys can go home and rebuild yeah. a couple more. Kinds of stuff. Well, I, I believe prophecies can have multiple. Well, they could, and there again, it depends on whether you're a preterist or a futurist. You believe most <laughs> Bible prophecy was culminated in the 870 AD, or you think not, and it's still yet to be fulfilled. So you know that affects your view a lot. Um, My conclusion <laughs> is what Betty said four weeks ago. <laughs> Don't worry about the end times, worry about your end times. <laughs> Betty's end time is probably still be alive when most of us are dead. <laughs> on, on Energizer Bunny. <laughs> One of my favorite. Don't tell anybody else. Don't kill Bob and Alice and Carol. They're one of my favorites in our life. I'm going to get clobbered by Bob. <clears throat> I don't know. What do you all think? You, I think you've uh, you changed my mind. I, I agree with you about uh, if the thousand years were literal, and I don't think that can be decided whether it's um, either amillennial or historical. Yeah, I mean, 
like Oti said, he took both points of view, basically premillennialism and amillennialism. That's up to God. Or like many people have said, they're panmillennialists. Because it'll all pan out in the end. Because yeah. uh, you're right, the, the thousand sometimes just means a lot. Yes. Phil? I'm firmly in the amillennial camp. Okay. <laughs> I think it's just the best interpretation of scripture. Apocalyptic scripture? Yeah. Yeah. After, after all this, I don't know, but if anything, you know, I could probably be persuaded on the historical premillennialism, maybe, but I'd probably amillennialism. I just don't see a dual redemptive plan, one for the nation of Israel. I can't get that in my mind. Somebody might be able to convince me that they're an expert on everything, but and a separate one for the Gentiles in the church. And you know, I was thinking. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. How many times did he say that? So if he's coming back to have a kingdom where it's governed in Jerusalem, not New Jerusalem, on earth and governing the nations, isn't that kind of the king, kingdom of the world? I don't know. I, some of these things I have a hard time accepting. But I like, I like what the, the restorationists uh, leaders did, and what David Lipscomb and that young man from Germany, Robert H. Bowl, did. They were brothers. They were friends. They could get along well. They were both saved, both going to the same place. You better get along now because you're going to be with them forever. <laughs> I like I like that point of view. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.